When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. There's a parable from ancient China written by the philosopher Han Feizi, telling the story of a merchant selling a spear and a shield. In order to attract customers, he first holds up the shield and says, "My shield is so strong, nothing can pierce through it." He then holds up the spear and says, "My spear is so sharp, there is nothing it can't penetrate." Then someone passing by asks, "If you launch your spear against your shield, what will happen?" And the merchant is speechless. Based on this story, the word for contradiction in Chinese is known as maodun, literally spear and shield. In Western mathematics and philosophy, this concept is better known as the paradox of the unstoppable force and the immovable object. This week, we witness this ancient parable and paradox play out at the very highest levels over China and its battle to maintain its zero COVID strategy against the Omicron variant. Representing the irresistible force or the spear was the Director General of the World Health Organization, Tedros Ghebreyesus. When we talk about the zero、um, COVID strategy. Uh, we don't think that it's sustainable, considering the behavior of the virus now and what we anticipate、uh, in the future. And representing the immovable force, the shield, was Zhao Lijian, China's spokesperson for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. China's dynamic zero COVID policy is not aimed to actually eliminate infections, but to control COVID within the shortest time and at the lowest social costs. The policy can protect people's health and the normal production and living order to the largest extent, so that the life, safety, and health of the more than 1.4 billion Chinese people can be effectively guaranteed. It's coming up to two months since Shanghai began what was originally announced as a five-day lockdown. Last weekend, that lockdown was made even tougher, with residents in at least four of 16 districts told that they were not to leave their front doors. Not for food, not for water, not for anything. Meanwhile, in Beijing, the streets around the central business district are deserted. The subways and all public transport are closed. Roads and parks are being sealed off, and residents are being asked to work from home. The immovable policy is spearing the economic output of China's two biggest cities, and the citizens are wondering what will shield them from the fear and anxiety of being taken away to a quarantine center. Welcome to the Inside China podcast. My name is Jasmine Se. I'm a producer with the podcast team at the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Thomas Yao, a regular correspondent from inside the Puxi District in Shanghai. He's confined to his apartment, but he's putting in long hours monitoring and verifying the sometimes shocking videos being shared on Chinese social media before they get deleted. 
He is also one of the many people in Shanghai now living with the daily anxiety of knowing if anyone on the same floor tests positive for COVID. The people in the white hazmat suits, locals call them the big whites, will come for him and take him away to a mandatory quarantine center. You'll also be hearing from my colleague, Josephine Ma, about that statement from the World Health Organization criticizing China's zero COVID strategy. And she's also going to explain what is delicately being referred to as the political complexity of maintaining zero COVID for Beijing. And you'll also hear from a long-term Shanghai resident about what's happening to the local economy. You've probably read the headlines about Tesla, Starbucks, and Apple, but there's a lot more to the story about what's happening to other businesses in Shanghai. Richard Brubaker has also been speaking with the expat community in Shanghai about their plans, and it sounds very much like what we've witnessed in Hong Kong over the last few months. Family-oriented expatriate families or expatriate groups, 50 to 75 percent right now have already got plans to leave for sure. China is finding out what happens when you launch the Omicron variant against a shield of zero COVID. But first, let's go beyond the fences and barriers that surround the Puxi district in Shanghai and hear from Thomas Yao. 43 days ago, you heard him on this podcast talking about the people in his district panic buying groceries ahead of a five-day lockdown that had just been announced. Thomas, You've had people around the world listening to the updates from your apartment. How are you holding up? This week has been honestly quite stressful because right now they tighten up the policy once again. Now, if your neighbors on the same floor test positive, everyone on the same floor will be sent to quarantine camps. And there are also a lot of videos of people in white hazmatsuits breaking into residents' apartment to disinfect. So not quite the thing that I would like to see uh, since the case has dropped so much, especially when you have like four cats in my apartment and there's uh, even more anxiety on top of that. That idea that you'll be taken away and that there's no one home to look after your pets, that must be very stressful for you and all the pet owners in Shanghai. I think that for people who have pets in Shanghai, this has been... The fear uh, since day one, I think you guys all remember the Koji, the dog incident. A quick reminder here that Thomas is referring to the shocking video of a health worker beating a dog to death after its owner was taken to quarantine, rather than leaving the dog to starve. This has always been a fear. But right now, when after they expand the quarantine policies, it's just there's just more risk of that happening. So Thomas, you're watching the neighborhood WeChat groups. You're talking with your neighbors when you go out to get tested every other day. What's the general mood that you're noticing since the escalation of this lockdown? Fear, definitely. It's very clear. People are worried because you could be taken away if you've tested negative and have someone entering your home. So there's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety among my neighbors. Let me take you back a couple of weeks. You mentioned that there is a rise in suspicion about neighbors who won't get tested. Is that adding anxiety to your day, that you need to worry about your neighbors and whether they're being careful to not get exposed? I think there's always been this anxiety. And even uh, I think that therefore the anxiety definitely rises after they escalate the measures. I remember in the WeChat group, people got really furious because there's a, a family the dad took the kid downstairs to uh, have some fresh air 
And then they were skipping ropes and everyone got so furious because, oh, they're getting themselves infected, exposed to it. So that has happened, but not for me because I understand, you know, the need for young children to get exercises. Yeah, it's just, I think everyone is a victim here. I mentioned in the introduction that Shanghainese people are calling the health workers in the white hazmat suits the big whites. We've seen one particular video of the big whites stepping into someone's home to spray bleach. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I think the, the big whites, they come from, it's a very generalized term to describe people in hazmat suits these days. There are some security guards, there are some government workers who've been sent to different compounds to help with the campaign against COVID-19. There are police officers, there are civil defense volunteers who spray the bleach. Uh, there are also your neighbors who were volunteers. Some are pretty nice, really responsible. They're just trying to help. Some are just, you got the feeling that they feel they have an immense power once they wear the suit, because that suit sort of concealed your identity. There's a great variety of uh, the behaviors of big whites that we saw in Shanghai. And there was also a very special Shanghai chemistry lesson you posted on Twitter this week. For my compound, they, when they disinfect the areas, mostly they use bleach, which is like hypochloric acid. And sometimes the residents will spray alcohol on top of that, just to disinfect the keys in the elevator. The Organic Chemistry 101, you mix alcohol with bleach, and that gives you chloroform. I'm not a chemist, but uh, these days I have developed dry throat, like very often after I got a delivery or some things like that. So I don't know if this is like the weather uh, or it's just uh, my throat being irritated by uh, different chemicals. Tell us a bit more about what you're seeing on Weibo and WeChat. Can you take us through some of the videos you've confirmed and shared on Twitter and SCMP.com? I think one video that's gone viral is uh, a couple of police officers of uh, Huangpu District, which is uh, one of the highest case counts in the area. So they decided to be more swift and determined, so as to speak. Uh, So they decided to uh, remove not just the positive cases, but also their neighbors on the same floor to central quarantine. So they were very firm to doesn't take any arguments. They said, you will be sent to quarantine. This is the policy. There's no why. I think that's the most, one of the most widely circulated big white videos in Shanghai this week. There's another video of police uh, warning a resident that if they don't go to central quarantine, uh, they will be punished. Uh, it's called administrative punishment. You go on the record. Although it's not criminal, it will affect your children and your grandchildren's chances of being employed as a civil servants. But uh, you know, to which the resident just replied, you know, well, this will be our last generation. And uh, the video end, and it's just very grim. It's just very grim reflection of what uh, what Shanghainese people have been going through in the past two months. I think. So, Thomas, I want to turn to the positive here. We've seen and heard rap videos coming from Shanghai, both novelty and critical. Are Shanghainese people sharing positive things? What are they doing to get through this? 
the most positive thing that you could see are probably people cooking themselves a nice meal or getting flowers to decorate their homes because it's now possible to buy roses through group buys. So that, that is a little thing that people try to treat themselves up. But the general mood is still pretty depressing. Uh, it's kind of strange because the caseload is going down, but uh, the measures are tightening up and people are feeling more stressed and, uh, and more depressed as the lockdown dress on. The news this week is about the WHO saying that China's zero-COVID strategy is not sustainable. But earlier this week, you shared comments from prominent Chinese lawyers about the legality of China's lockdowns. Can you explain what's happening here? Yes. Um, so it's actually the draft of his open letter that got leaked by his friends. It's from a constitutional expert called Tong Ziwei. There's a lot of legal points in the letter, but the, the, the two main points are that the authority, when they enter people's home, when they send people who tested negative into quarantine, they always quote that this is a state of emergency. If you don't comply, you are violating the public ordinance. But he argues that to invoke such legal rights, you have to first declare a state of emergency. And the only two entities in China that has such authority, he said, are the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress and the State Council. But they never issue any formal uh, declaration on that. So actually, you can't say that you have the authority because they haven't declared a state of emergency yet. He also argues that, well, there's no right for any authority to demand access to citizens' home without their consent. So that, those are the two main points that he argues about, the, the legality of the whole situation here in Shanghai. What about a timeline or a forecast for when Shanghai can get out of this? Are you hearing anything about that? Uh, there are no uh, definitive uh, answer or even educated guess. They are just rumors because they are replacing the, the, the flowers on one of the major footbridge here in Shanghai. So they thought... So there's a one rumor that says uh, Shanghai's lockdown will officially be lifted on the uh, 20th of May. There's also another rumor that says uh, Shanghai's lockdown will be lifted on the 1st of June. But then, um, you know, they're just not credible. And honestly, I have no idea when life will be back to uh, sort of a, a relatively normal situation. Thomas, thank you once again for your time and from all of us here in Hong Kong and those around the world who've been listening to your updates these past few weeks. Hang in there, Thomas. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, take care, guys. Josephine Ma is one of our news editors on the China Desk and a regular on this podcast since the start of the pandemic, following the developments of China's COVID strategy and vaccine development. Now, for the past two years, we've been hearing criticism of the WHO and its relationship with China. But on Tuesday, we heard this from the WHO Director General, Tedros Ghebreyesus. When we talk about the zero um, COVID strategy, uh, we don't think that it's sustainable, considering the behavior of the virus now and what we anticipate uh, in the future. Uh, we, we, we have discussed about this issue with um, Chinese uh, experts. And we uh, indicated that the approach, um, uh, you know, uh, will not be sustainable. 
and considering the behavior of the virus, uh, I think a shift will be very important. Was this a surprise to you? Was there any warning that the WHO was about to make this kind of statement? Yeah, that was a surprise to me in the sense that the WHO has always been careful on the comments on individual governments, or you can say they are quite diplomatic. So um, that was a surprise to me. On the other hand, it's a view shared by almost like most scientists outside China, especially after what happened in Shanghai when people see the huge social costs for lockdown and also Omicron, the playbook of fighting COVID kind of like change with the high transmissibility of Omicron. A lot of people believe that uh, imposing restrictions like lockdown may not be necessary given Omicron cause milder symptoms to most of the people. So I can only say it's kind of like half-half. It was a bit surprising, but it's not really a surprise because that's a view shared by most of people in the world, in the science community. And how did this play out in Beijing? It's quite interesting because hours after the comment was made, the official Weibo account of United Nations had a post about that comment. And it was taken out by the Chinese censors, the authorities, um, very quickly. And then when people like look for that post, they saw this notification that the content was removed because it doesn't comply with the law in China. So it, it, it's quite interesting to see the contents of the United Nations being removed by um, the Chinese censors. And then later in a regular press briefing by the foreign ministry, um, the spokesman was asked the question and he like flatly called rabies not to make irresponsible comment. The Chinese government and Xi Jinping himself have doubled down on China's zero COVID policy. And in one of your latest articles this week, you wrote that there's a, quote, pressing political dynamic to this. What do you mean by political dynamic? Yeah, um, actually in a conference chaired by the Vice Premier Sun Chunlan, who is in charge of the fight against COVID, she was talking about the introduction of new measures such as building or installing test booths in all the big cities to allow people to access to um, PCR tests within like 15 minutes of walking. So when she was talking about these new measures, she was saying these measures are important to ensure a good environment for the upcoming party congress. So the party congress is the most important event in China this year. We are expecting Xi Jinping will um, take the third term as party secretary of the Communist Party. And that's the priority for both the party and the government right now. And China really wants to reduce the risk all sorts of risks or all sorts of uncertainties, including political risks, social risks, economic risks, in the running up of the party congress so that they can focus on this very important event and also for the third term of C. And also there will be uh, a reshuffle of the Politburo Standing Committee. That's the, the top echelon of the Communist Party. That's something top on the agenda of the party. 
Interestingly, just last week, the Nature Journal published a hypothetical model of an Omicron wave in China if the government were to abandon its zero-COVID policy. This was a collaboration between researchers from China and the U.S., and they based it on data from the Shanghai outbreak. Let me play you a quote from the study. Our simulated baseline scenario suggests that, in the absence of non-pharmaceutical intervention, the introduction of the Omicron variant in China in March 2022 could have the potential to generate a tsunami of COVID-19 cases. Over a six-month simulation period, such an epidemic is projected to cause 112.2 million symptomatic cases, 5.1 million hospital admissions, 2.7 million ICU admissions, and 1.6 million deaths, with a major wave occurring between May and July 2022. Did you see any reaction to this from Chinese social media and state media? Yes. Actually, a lot of state media and also social media mentioned this report because they, they use it as a justification of this lockdown and also the dynamic zero COVID policy because a lot of people face restrictions or they be even like locked in their homes because of these restrictions. And they use it as a justification for this policy. And also state media or the internet influencers, they were saying, oh, uh, for example, Grabiasis, he doesn't really care about how many people will die in China if he said the policy is not sustainable. For example, in one of the commentary, they were saying China understands um, the huge cost incurred for the zero COVID policy, but it has to explore and, and to find a way to minimize death. And it's so easy to ask China to abandon the zero COVID policy, but who will be responsible if people die after the, the policy is released? So that's the kind of argument that um, like state media or like commentators from the media or the internet influencers are saying. This study also specifically mentions Hong Kong as an example of the dangers of not having vaccinated the elderly and not locking down the city. But now, Hong Kong has been loosening COVID restrictions and reopening its borders with the world. But what about mainland China? Is there a roadmap in moving forward from mass testing and lockdowns? Before I answer the question about the roadmap, I would like to point out that according to the study, 1.6 million deaths will be a result if antiviral drug is not used and if the ICU are not like being used effectively. So that's something we should bear in mind. And also in that study, they point out that if the right treatment is given and the right um, care is given, the death, the projected death actually um, can be reduced by 89%. And China has already approved the antiviral drug by Pfizer, plus avoid. So I think that's a factor we should bear in mind. And also, as you said, like the, the case in Hong Kong point to the significance of the vaccination of the elderly because most of the deaths in Hong Kong are like old people. And if you look at the modeling of the study by Fudan and also the, the, the US scientists, three quarters of the death will be the elderly people. So that's the group that we should 
pay most attention to. China argues that the vaccination rate of the elderly remains low, and that's a reason for not opening up the country. They have actually given a big push for the vaccination among elderly in the past month. So in the past month alone, they have vaccinated like 3 million elderly people. Over 80% of the elderly people in China have already had two doses. So it's totally correct that um, the vaccination of elderly is very important. That's when if we set the goal of reducing hospitalization and death. But if the goal remains to be eliminating or avoiding any infection, any kind of local transmission, that's what um, zero COVID policy is about, then it requires more than vaccinating the elderly. And that's why they are talking about this new requirements for people to have PCR tests every like few days or every week if they want to go to work or if they want to go to school or if they want to take any kind of public transport and they're setting up like booths or using test vehicles for PCR tests, like mobilizing these buildings or mobilizing these facilities in all the big cities. So they are hoping that by obliging people in big cities to take regular PCR tests, then they can identify infection in the early stage then they can like stop the, the local transmission. That's what they are doing in Beijing. So they kind of like imposing lots and lots of restrictions and banning people from moving around when only like a dozen cases were found. And now like after like a week or two, there are only like several dozens of cases instead of like huge explosion like the case in Shanghai. So they are hoping to duplicate this model and see if they can make this zero COVID approach or policy more sustainable. But of course, as a resident in these cities, I mean, they still face like some degree of disruption. For example, they have to queue up like every week or every few days for a PCR test uh, and they have to present the test results before they can, for example, take a bus or they can go to work. That's what happened in um, these big cities right now. Joe, as always, we'll find your news and analysis on scmp.com. Thank you for your time. You're most welcome. You last heard from Richard Brubaker on this podcast almost exactly one month ago. He's a sustainability and entrepreneurial expert and has been living in Shanghai for almost 20 years. Richard, let me start with the same question I asked of my colleague Thomas Yao in the Pushi district. How are you holding up? Oh, you know, I've got a healthy uh, comedic attitude towards this now. The goalposts just keep on moving. But honestly, I went through 10 months of this in the States. And so me and the family, we're, we're good. We're a tight unit. We we know when we're about to rub each other and we, we back off. Got plenty of food. And we're one of the fortunate ones because we can walk outside in our compound. And we have a, a nice enough compound that... I can get, you know, a solid five to 10 miles of walk run in every day. So I'm, I'm, I'm finding my ways and I'm just kind of allowing Stockholm syndrome to kick in and just, you know, run with it. Uh, I'm not biting at the, at the chomp to get out as it were, which is, I think it's a healthy way to, to maintain your sanity during this time. Just don't, don't raise your expectations too high. There's been some interesting parallels between Shanghai and Hong Kong. I'm wondering, what are you seeing and hearing within the expat community right now? 
Is there much talk of exit plans? Oh, that's the only talk right now, honestly. Uh, the only people who are not talking about leaving are those who are more than likely, they're going to be kind of, uh, you know, local and foreign families, and they're really struggling with how to leave. Like they want to, but the, the logistics around it is quite difficult. And the other one would be actually younger foreign professionals who I would call a half-pat. They're not a full expat. They came over here, kind of like myself, you know, 20 years ago. They didn't come here with a, a golden parachute. They really tried to make China a career or just found constant excitement. And yes, this is a bit of a sit-back for some, but it's also seen as a huge opportunity for those because they realized how many people are leaving. And so if you're talking like the more family-oriented expatriate families or expatriate groups, 50 to 75 percent right now have already got plans to leave for sure. Even if they're not talking about it, they do. And they've been thinking about it. And if the schools remain closed or if the exodus of teachers comes together, as we've been hearing about, you're looking at much more than 75 percent of families either fully or partially leaving the city, the country itself, because that is by far the biggest conversation point around why you would leave. It's it's the cost of education and the disruption to children and knowing that there's a lot of options out of China right now to solve that particular problem. In Hong Kong, the discussion about expats is weirdly all about bankers and their contribution to Hong Kong's economy. Is there any sense of the recognition of the contribution of expats in Shanghai? Or does no one really care if they leave? Depends on who you ask. And it depends on what they actually know versus what personal belief they're driven by. I would argue that most Shanghai residents, most Chinese, have had a long, friendly relationship with the majority of expatriates, foreigners, that have been in this country. And they they do value them as part of their community, part of their business, part of the cultural addition. They, there's a real clear sense that value is being delivered through the, you know, through the diversity that the city and the country has, you know, brought in over the years. I would say, statistically speaking, the government has a very clear idea of how important they are. The question is whether or not that importance trumps the actions that they feel they need to take against COVID. And I guess that's the balance. But, you know, the Ministry of Commerce itself put out statistics that foreign companies are 10% of the economy in terms of the numbers, but they contribute 40% of urban jobs. They contribute 20 to 30% of total taxes. So it's a very important community. And for me, regardless of how this exits, China will be the loser in Asia because Foreign companies have already been looking to leave. This will just catalyze it. They're going to leave China and go somewhere else. And somewhere else might be U.S., EU home bases, or it might be Southeast Asia. A lot of them are trying that. But honestly, for the most majority of the firms that I've even spoken to about this, they're even uncomfortable with regional relocation. They're looking for true, close-to-home, near-shoring regional economy support, resilience over having any kind of long potential chains that might be broken. And that's not China specific. That is very much seeing how the supply chain, you know, really fractured under the pressure here and the need to draw in, create resilience through having multiple bases of raw materials, subassembly, 
processing, export, you know, the whole deal. That also does align with the fact that markets have generally matured to the point where each major market, you know, let's just say Asia, North and South America, and then the EU, they can support their own factory for their own market in those spaces. And then they can probably just export around the region. We've seen and read a lot of headline stories about the impact of lockdowns on factories owned by Tesla and Apple. But Shanghai's economic base is so much bigger than that. Now, you've been posting a lot of analysis about what's happening with these things known as SMEs, small and medium enterprises. What are you seeing and hearing? We're bleeding out. Honestly, it's, it's a very tough time. And of course, I'm a data point of one, but I've been talking to a lot of my, a lot of my friends about this. And there's kind of there's several things that are happening right now that are, are causing a lot of pain. And the first one is there's no cash coming in. Now, for those of you that don't understand the Chinese system, we have a specific printer that prints the invoices that we use to bill out our clients. And without that, they cannot pay us. They can't even start the payment terms. So if you're saying net 60 to someone or net 30, that, that process doesn't even start until you issue and they receive that specific invoice. Well, that printer is locked into every accountant's office right now, all of which, unless your accountant is sleeping in the office, are off limits right now. And even if they could, they can't send them by courier to anybody because all the all the services are disrupted. So there's no cash coming in. And that's been true for the last 45 days of this five-day lockdown. And it's going to be true for the next 60 to 90 days, depending upon how your payment terms are set up. And you know, if you're in the international trade business, you're a trader, you are a small agency, it's going to impact differently. But everyone is talking about this. Uh, the second thing that people are talking a lot about is there's no relief from the other side of the equation, which was your cost structure. I'm still paying full rent. I'm still paying full benefits. There's no loans or support available for me, even though there's talks about small business plans. And that's true for Chinese as well as for foreign companies that are small groups. And you know, one I was talking to the other day is, you know, I'm I'm in a co-shared workspace. And our co-shared workspace is hosted inside of a state-owned enterprise building. So technically, we're supposed to have six months of free rent. However, because we're in a co-shared workspace, we're a member, we're not a tenant, which guess what? It means they're going to fraction us in terms of how much benefit we get. And by the way, it's not coming right away. So this is something that, you know, I'm not saying that the architects of the system thought through that in the first five days of this lockdown. But these are things that we are feeling 45, 60, 90 days into it that basically equate to a really large wipeout potentially of many small to medium-sized businesses because even the best one runs had six to nine months of cash flow. I always aim for 12 to 18. So I'm not in much threat, but I have friends who are at six months who are now looking at, wow, I have got no money in, it's all money out. I'm on money next month and I've got 50 employees and I have several friends like that. So Again, it's it's still early days. It's just folks on Shanghai. But if you're a small retailer, you're in a lot of trouble uh, because you're just not getting any benefit um, in terms of the support you need to, to offset the costs at a time when you're not able to bill. I mentioned one specific to the foreign companies is that, you know, I was uh, I told my accountant we need to transfer some money from Hong Kong into China. And they're like, you can't. You cannot do foreign exchange at all because that requires you to go into a bank and to do a chop. And they're all closed. A quick note here, if you've never lived in China, a CHOP is the official stamp of a company or government department that needs to go on all formal documents. Also, if you need a government agency for anything, customs clearance or anything that's special that's outside of 
it's impossible because all the agencies are closed as well. So it's there's a lot of these little impacts and the large companies have the ability to negotiate with their counterparts in the development zones, in the city government, in wherever to get some relief. But us, us SMEs, we're, we're on our own and some of us are still just trying to figure out how to get food. So yeah, it's, it's not a good situation for a lot of entrepreneurs right now. Now, Richard, you've mentioned something called the economic long tail of COVID in Shanghai. Can you explain what you mean by that? Again, my one data point here is that at a minimum, if you if you accept the theory that COVID lockdowns will be the major tool through the, the party meeting later this year, that puts us at about four to five months before they start to even consider switching tactic. My personal belief is that that gets extended through Chinese New Year to 23 because it's the winter months. They're not gonna they're not gonna rip the band-aid and try a new tactic at the at the worst possible timing. They're gonna they're gonna make sure that they protect their healthcare system. So you're looking at February next year before a significant tactic happens. So between now and then, you have a lot of up and down lockdowns that will happen. You know, maybe in Shanghai we get one more, maybe we get two more. Like nobody knows, and that's the uncertainty. But what we know certainly is once they make that strategic shift into live with it, then we have another six to nine months of significant disruptions. And so the economic long tail is just, you know, one, the two issues I mentioned earlier, cash in, cash out, those remain challenging during that time in different ways for different organizations, of course. But then the the third one that really is going to be impacting, you know, many businesses, including mine, is just the general level of uncertainty will inhibit a lot of new business from being done. No one's going to make huge decisions about the next 12 to 18 months and back that with scarce resources, knowing that they're not sure will they be able to keep the factory open, be able to access the office? Will the will the consumers have the ability to buy anything online and have it delivered effectively? I think there's just too much uncertainty. And that's what the long tail of this, it, it's not going to just go away after a month after they let us out of our homes and back into our offices. Like they still don't even have a plan for how to really get the offices back open. And that could take another two to three months. So imagine like how long this keeps going given a situation where a port is closed for a week and we're dealing with inflation for six months. Like it's just, we haven't really thought through all these challenges. Now, at the same time, I, sh- I don't want to be too pessimistic. I have some friends who've done very well to create brand new businesses at this time that were initially retail-oriented e-commerce that switched from small packaging to group packaging. And one of my friends launched a tomato farm, a hydroponic tomato farm, just at the perfect time. I mean, he hadn't sold more than four or five handfuls of tomatoes before this. And my compound ordered 70 boxes, you know, at 20 bucks each. And he's doing that over and over and over again. So there are opportunities here, but I think if you're an established organization and you're trying to diverse this challenge, the challenges really fall into those three categories around cash in, cash out, and long-term uncertainty. But for some, that's a that's that is the opportunity. You know, blood in the streets is a great time to to go and try things. So I think we're going to see some some changes there. But I I don't know if the planners thought through that enough. I don't know how they're going to traverse and really ensure that what's happened in other parts of the world economically doesn't impact them the same way because New York is only waking up after two and a half years. Can Shanghai do the same? 
that's what I'm more focused on right now because that's what my friends are screaming about right now. And I have one friend who's two friends who are killing it. One's in PPE and one's in hydroponic tomatoes. So, you know, like, uh, but everyone else is like, well, ah, you know, uh, it's going to be very challenging. The last time we heard from you, you discussed the problem with truck drivers at the heart of the logistics crisis in Shanghai. We're now in this new five-day lockdown. What kind of problems are you observing now? Well, from from just a pure individual resident perspective, I will say that even with all these new restrictions and silent periods and the walls going up, in, in my area, food still is coming through pretty much unabated. Like we were able to get what we want. We actually have a few retail stores now that can kind of personalize things. So you don't need to buy in group anymore, but it's, I think it's just a general level of uncertainty and anxiety that comes along with all those actions. And again, I'm not saying any of those, those actions are even irrational. I think some of them make a lot of sense. Like today they came up with one that, you know, even if you clear the, the, the community and you clear each building and you're safe for 14 days, you're still not allowed out of the compound until kind of a threshold for PCR testing has been met because you've had a lot of compounds go from 100% testing to 40, 50, 60, 70. Like there's a range because, you know, people are fearful of the PCR, like going out of their house into an elevator and having it be conducted that way. Others are just, you know, they've opted out. Um, that's their way. But the government said, okay, if you want out as a community, now you must reach a threshold. And, and I personally don't know what it is, but I was told that our compound doesn't reach it yet. And I know that we're in the 70s, maybe 80s. We're, we're pretty high from what I understand. So again, like some of these things are really, they're, they're learning as they go along, they're pivoting, they're trying to find new paths. The walls that we see being built along the roads, I, I'm not sure what the purpose is, but it reminds me of what they learned through the Beijing closed loop process for the Olympics. They were able to very effectively during the Olympics create certain corridors that say, you know, transportation and delivery people could go through that didn't physically touch, you know, the, the residents and physically touch the healthcare professionals that are behind those walls. And that way they could keep things moving more smoothly with less risk. If that's part of it, then I can't say that that's a bad thing to try. Let's just hope that it has the outputs or the intended consequences that they're thinking of, or that they're able to adjust to the unintended consequences a little bit faster. Because I think right now what we need to be avoiding is more unintended significant consequences to what may be great decisions. We need to see the city really start to function at full capacity again soon in order to avoid the, the next layers of crisis, which we haven't talked about the mental health issues. We haven't talked about the long-term education issues. And, and those are really important to be talked about as well, because you know we have kids in our compound that have not left their apartment in 45 days. That, I'm sorry, when you're four, five, six, seven years old, that's an important time where you need to be outside playing, interacting with kids, you know, separate from the schooling. So again, there's a lot of layers to this onion and I think we're all just trying to hope that they can get through as quickly as possible with the least amount of unintended consequences right now as possible. We've just heard from my colleague, Joe Ma, talking about the report in the Nature Journal warning of a tsunami of deaths in the elderly should China drop its zero COVID policy. And it's all due to low vaccination rates. When do you see the restrictions being lifted in Shanghai? Well, I, I think that we're in for another three to four weeks of what we're currently in right now, realistically in part because they haven't got the vaccinations going in Shanghai. So 
the biggest tool that they have in the bag is unfortunately unable to be deployed right now, which means the risk level that they're seeing doesn't change materially. And it's the elderly that they're trying to protect. And I'm not in the meeting, so I don't know what they're what they're what they're going through. But yes, the, the elderly vaccination rate is lower than they would like. I believe the Financial Times and economists have both put that around uh, like 60 percent have one shot and or 70 percent have one shot. 50 percent have two and 20 percent have three. Roughly. They need 80 percent to have three. And they need 80% to have three within the specific time framing of these vaccinations. Because keep in mind, a lot of the elderly were vaccinated 18 months ago in Shanghai for their first one. So if they've only got one, well, that's more enough to go start all over again. And that's a real concern. I, I think that's a real challenge that they need to be addressing. So what we need is for those vaccination rates to come up before I think the government feels comfortable transitioning away from lockdown as a major tool for addressing the COVID threat. And that gets me, again, back to Chinese New Year of next year as potentially the first real window that I believe is open. Um, now, whether or not it'll happen, I guess, is really up to the vaccination strategy and what they learn through, you know, Shanghai's being run very different than, say, the Beijing, Xi'an, uh, Wuxi, different lockdowns. They're all kind of different. And I think they're going to learn lessons from each one, and then they'll apply the, the whole tool set and either stomp out COVID, which they've been very successful at, or figure out the right path to transition through it. And that's where I kind of come back to after Chinese year 2023, they will at some point have to transition through it. And that period could be three months, it could be nine months, it could be relatively easy, it could be very painful with lockdowns. Because even if they let this thing go and say, we're going to live with it, a lot of the people may take agency and say, you know, I'm not going to work in factories. I'm not going to work in offices. I'm not going to work in hospitals to protect myself. And every time they make that decision, you lengthen the, the term by which you go through it. So again, you still have those same disruptions happening. You still have those same challenges. And ultimately, they need to find the path through it. And a big part of that will be three shots in the arm. Doesn't matter if it's Chinese or not. Now, I don't think the foreign vaccines have to be the way. Three of Chinese, either one, Sinovac, Sinopharm, gets them to the same level as three shots of Pfizer. We just need to get three shots in arms. Richard, thanks for your time. Stay safe. My pleasure. Always. That's all for this week's episode of Inside China. And of course, a reminder that all the latest updates and developments from within Beijing, Shanghai, and the other cities in mainland China in partial or full lockdown are on scmp.com. Look up Thomas Yao on Twitter, that's Thomas Y-A-U, for his latest videos and observations. And you can find Richard Brubaker posting updates from his side of Shanghai at Rich Brubaker. You can find me on Twitter at Jasmine Y. Se. Stay safe, stay healthy. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.